LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dominic Frisby, who joins us to discuss his new book, Life After the State. Have you got the feeling that things are spiralling out of control, that politics has lost its way, and that despite government promises, nothing ever changes? Well, you're right. In every instance where government gets involved in people's lives with a desire to do good, it can always be relied on to make the situation much, much worse. Yet despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, we imagine that a world without the state would be a wild and terrifying place. However, life after the state shows that human nature proves the opposite to be true. Hello and welcome, Dominic, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Dominic, today we're going to discuss your book, which is just out, Life After the State. Before we dive into that, perhaps you could just tell listeners a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you came to write the book in the first place. Well, uh, thank you very much. It's, it's an unusual background. I actually... I, the, the first job I ever had was doing a voiceover when I was about 21 years old after I left college. And so I've done voiceovers all my life. And f- from doing voiceovers, I got into comedy in the kind of mid to late 90s. And uh, I was and still am a stand up comedian. And then in the mid noughties, I had a bit of money and I wasn't quite sure how to invest it. And uh, I was looking around me and there were all these uh, I didn't entirely trust the financial advisors that I met and I hated the language of finance. I always found it a bit complicated and alienating and I never felt I quite understood what was being said to me. And um, I find clarity particularly important being a comedian because if you're not clear and the audience doesn't understand you, they don't laugh. And that forces the discipline of clarity on you and and finance has never had that that, uh, pressure on it. Anyway, um, so there were all these very interesting people that I'd come across. I I started reading a magazine called Money Week, and then I started reading things on the Internet. And there were all these interesting people. And um, I wanted an excuse to meet them. And with my background in voiceovers, I did something not unlike what you've done. I started a podcast as an excuse to meet them. And one of the people who I met was a lady called Marion Somerset Webb, and she offered me a job. Uh, writing a column for Money Week, which has been, you know, fairly popular. Money Week, uh, uh, an investment magazine, and um, from there I started writing and writing and reading and reading. And and the big investment I made back in 2005, 2006 was gold, and uh, that was the right sector to be in until, well, until 2011. Really, it's done extremely well, and um, you know, and I with the podcast and the column, I built up a, a reasonable following, and. The thing about investing in gold is is it's not just an investment. There's a very political angle to gold as well. There's a lot of people, I'm sure you know, who believe 
that gold is a is a is a form of money that has a higher integrity to it than government money, the system of money that we use now. And when gold was money, governments were restricted in what they were able to do, and society benefited from the restrictions that were placed on the state. And so this political angle to gold became more and more interesting to me so I started reading more and more and interviewing more and more people and I wrote a big long essay called why gold is the currency of the free and that did very well and and this book is I suppose the culmination of all of that and it's called life after the state and uh, it's bemoaning the world in which we now find ourselves and looking forward to a better world in the future in what which government has a much smaller role to play. Of course, for a lot of people, um, particularly those who get their information from the mainstream, even reading the title of your book is going to induce incredulity because in most people's minds, everything flows from the state. Even all the private sector activity is somehow facilitated by the state. So you're at a party, you start talking to someone about this. In a nutshell, how do you even begin to take them with you down a road where they could have a discussion about how necessary the state really is? Well, it's very difficult and the large state model has only been with us for a hundred years. It only really started at World War One or just before. And the opening lines of the historian A.J.P. Taylor wrote a book in 1965 called English History, 1914 to 45. And this was the best selling history book ever. And the opening lines read in 1914, a sensible law abiding Englishman could go through life and barely notice the existence of the state beyond the post office and the policeman. So that gives you an idea of, of, you know, you could travel abroad without a passport. You could change money without restriction. It was just a much freer existence. Education had only recently become compulsory. Healthcare was provided not by the NHS, but by what were, what were known as the friendly societies, local societies. Welfare was also provided by the friendly societies and not by the state. So this large state model that is everywhere, we paid no income tax. Uh, in I think income tax was introduced in 1907, if I've got the year right. There were brief, brief spurts of income tax. We had to pay income tax by during the Napoleonic Wars, and then it was abolished. And, and in 1914, the big change came, which was World War One had begun. And in order to fund World War One, the government took us off the gold standard. And so up until 1914, we'd been on the gold standard. So governments, to a large extent, could only spend as much money as they had gold. And once the gold had run out, the money had run out. But obviously, being in World War One, they wanted to spend more money. So they took us off the gold standard and printed the money that was um, needed to pay for the war. And the debt was left to the future generations to pay off. Now, what I find so fascinating is had we stayed on the gold standard, World War One really would have been over by Christmas because there wasn't the gold to pay for it. So the gold standard would have placed that limitation on government. Now, think of if you count the Spanish flu that came after World War One, I, I think something like 20 million people died as a result of that war. And think of the ramifications of, of World War One. You know, the, the reparations that Germany had to had to pay led to the Weimar inflation and the um, economic collapse that came with Weimar inflation led to social upheaval, which led eventually to the rise of Hitler and then World War Two. I mean, it changed the whole course of the 20th century. And it's amazing to think that just that one decision, that one small decision to leave the gold standard made 
so much of the 20th century history possible. And, you know, in my opinion, much of that should never have happened. Now, obviously, I don't go, I don't, if I meet someone at a party and I start talking about my book, I don't go in quite as hard as that. But given the title of your radio program, I can, <laughs> I can do that. But, you know, there's a lot of very caring, compassionate people who believe in the large state model because it's the large state that gives us health care. It's the large state that gives us welfare. But one of the big themes of my book is that we don't need the large state in order to have good welfare and health care. In fact, good welfare and good health care would be better if the state stayed out of it. But at the moment, with, with thinking as it is in the world, and, and I'll come back to, to that point in a moment, Greg, about why it would be better. But at the moment, the thinking is, if you want to abolish the large state model, you want to get rid of the NHS, and therefore you are a compassionate, you are a, a person who is lacking in compassion, and you don't care about people, and you want the weak and the infirm to suffer. Now, that's not what I want at all. I want the weak and the infirm to prosper, which is why I think, the Western large state model is a bad thing. Now, particularly in the wake of um, the 2008 financial crash, a lot of uh, fire has been aimed at, quote unquote, capitalism, the free market model. And yeah. you, could you could perhaps get people to understand, look at the Soviet Union or look at Cuba or whatever and look at North Korea and you could get them to agree that, yeah, 100 percent state is not good. Yeah. But they then say, but we do need the state to keep in check the ravages of the so-called free market. But as you point out in the book, what we don't really have, we don't we do not have a genuine free market at the moment. And the, the whole notion of capitalism has become corrupted. And what we have this form of crony capitalism, which we saw at its worst with the bank bailouts. Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. Capitalism has been blamed for the crisis when actually crony capitalism is to blame. Now, what is crony capitalism? Capitalism is a, a market in which everyone is equal. Nobody is given any special favour, be it tax favour, legislative favour, regulatory favour, whatever it is. But under this system that we have at the moment, uh, which I call crony capitalist, different groups of people are given special favour. Now, the, the, the group of people that are given the biggest special favour of all are bankers, because banks have this right under the current monetary system to create money. Now, the power to create money, it's just ridiculous. And the state has this power and banks have this power. Banks create it through lending. And every time a pound is created, the, the, the value of your pound in your pocket is interfered with. People complain that it's a lack of regulation in the banking sector that led to the financial crisis. Well, Mother Nature has provided us with a very good regulator. It's called bankruptcy. And if you behave in a certain way, in a reckless way, you go bankrupt. Now, why were banks not allowed to go bankrupt? Because, if you, you know, that's not they were bailed out. Now, that is crony capitalist. That's not capitalism. Whether you think the bank should have been bailed out or not is a different matter. The fact is that they were bailed out shows that, that the banks were given special favour, which is which is a feature of crony capitalism, not capitalism. Now, if banks operated with a genuine fear of bankruptcy, they wouldn't operate in the way that they do. You know, 
I'm sure in a free market, for example, ordinary high street or retail banking and investment banking would be two separate entities. And an investment bank wouldn't be able to leverage Aunt Mabel's savings in the retail bank up many times and then go and speculate in the financial markets with them. I just don't believe that such a system would be operate, would, would, would exist unless the banks were given some kind of special favour. So, yes, the system is not capitalist or free market it is crony capitalist and people people say the system is failing and i couldn't agree more the system is failing it's creating injustice and distortion all, all across the economy but it is not the failure of capitalism it's the failure of crony crony capitalism well we've already moved beyond the state as the root of so many of the problems that the world's facing and that is as you say the, the control over the issuance of money and also the nature of money you know we're many parts of the world were dictated to as to what we can use. I mean, yeah, I can swap my loaf for your fishes or whatever, but, you know, we have to pay our taxes in sterling and the same sort of regimes exist in, in most of the world. And that's another system that we've had, this banking system, for, you know, for about 100 years or so. And, of course, we've now reached a point where the debt, personal debt, you know, corporate debt in many cases, national governmental debts have become unmanageable. We see this in the US with, you know, untold trillions owed over there, the actual amount probably way above the actual declared amount. Uh, we see enormous problems in the EU. And yet government spending and government debt are both going up year on year despite the need for austerity and what have you. And personal debt is causing enormous problems um, yeah. for, for, for individuals. So we're at a point now, it feels like, well, it felt like a tipping point in 2008, but of course the banks weren't allowed to go bankrupt. But where we are now a few years on is almost infinitely worse if you actually look at the numbers. Yes and no. The banks are not as leveraged as they once were. But personal debt is, is, is enormous. Housing debt is enormous. And sovereign debt, government debt is enormous. The other thing that's happened is that through the process of quantitative easing and bailing out the banks, wealth has been transferred from the saver to the financial system uh, or to the banks. So some areas of the economy are more leveraged than they were and others are actually led, less leveraged. And if we're going to get it, I mean, the question I'm asking myself, and it's one that I don't have a satisfactory answer to, is does debt matter? Now, once upon a time it did. But at the moment, tragically, in my opinion, it looks like governments have got away with it. They've managed to bail themselves out. They've kicked the can down the road. You know, they've successfully kicked it so that the can's not going to, rear its ugly head if you don't mind me mixing my metaphors now you know once upon a time if one government had done this by themselves they would have been punished in the bond market or on the forex markets but because every government in the west has pretty much done it to a greater or lesser extent they haven't been punished in the bond markets you know the the, the bond vigilantes haven't come now are they going to come maybe i don't know and uh, but at the moment the gold and silver price are telling you by the fact that they're falling that that they've gone away with it. So the question is, does debt matter? Uh, and it, obviously it matters to you or me, but to the government, it doesn't seem to, although it should. Reinhardt and Rogoff have got their famous 90% of GDP and when debt gets above 90% of GDP, then you're in trouble. But we're all way above 90%. Of course, it depends how you measure the debt and and if you were to measure government debt according to the same standards that they set for 
uh, you know, they're generally accepted accounting principles that they set for major corporations. I think government debt is something like five to seven times higher than is currently stated, but they don't measure it like that. And, you know, the great injustice, in my opinion, is that they seem to have got away with it. And the question is, for how much longer is, uh, you know, is the gold price doing what it did between 1974 and 1976? It's just a correction and an ongoing thing. Or, or is this the end? We, we Only time will tell. Well, I suppose the question is, with regarding all this debt, government debt in particular, is who it's actually owed to. And if you have a banking system that's creating money, albeit as debt, out of nothing, then you could sort of say, well, it's all just figures on a screen. But again, the question... Well, that's the thing. You're, you're absolutely right. Who it's all owed to is, is what they've done is they've printed that they've created the money. So they've stolen it off savers by, you know, through through the taxation that is inflation, through devaluation of money. They've stolen it. And that's why I'm asking, does that matter? Because they've stolen it. And, you know, they seem to have got away with it because it's so insidious and surreptitious that people don't realise. No, it, it has caused problems in the real world for individuals, for companies. There's no denying that. So they may have got away with it. But, you know, nonetheless, there has been there have been consequences. And I suppose the question then is, well, if they keep on keeping on, will there be more serious consequences that will make it harder for them to keep on keeping on? Well, I don't know. I really don't know. It, it's the I mean, it's I'm, I'm asking it myself all the time. I just don't know. I mean, I, I just think tragically they've got away with it. I know that's not what you know, we all want the gold price to go to the moon and, and, and we want a much better society and so on and so forth. But um, for now, they've got away with it. And um, I don't know if that'll change or not. For now, you know, they've got away with it. Well, look at the enormous problems in Greece, for example, you know, social problems. I mean, would you, I'm not saying, I don't know how close you've analysed that situation, but are we expecting that to just gradually improve over time till they get back to something like normality? I mean, I've read lots of pieces right. where people are saying, you know, Greece, basically, if it's going to conform to this repayment regime, it's going to face permanent austerity. Yeah, the, the EU is a different matter because of the fact that they don't have control of their currency, so they can't transfer wealth in the way that America and, and, and the UK can. And, uh, you know, at some point in the UK, there's maybe not a revolution, as Russell Brand says, but something's going to happen, because at what point, I mean, you know, the first-time buyer in London is now, average age of the first-time buyer is, is now over 40. House prices are so expensive. And, you know, he'll be a pensioner before he can afford to start a family. And, you know, how, how ridiculous does it have to get you know, two and a half percent of the land in the UK is actually built on just two and a half percent. And we only live on about seven percent. There's more land in the UK has been set aside for golf courses than there are houses built than land with actual houses built on. them. You can build a perfectly nice, you know, timber framed house for less than 50 grand. So why is the, the, the age of the first time buyer so so high? Why is it so ridiculously expensive? You know, it should be cheaper for a young person to buy a house than it's ever been. It should be cheaper for people to enjoy a middle class lifestyle than it's ever been. But it's not. You know, more and more people have to go to work and, you know, mum and dad have to work. They have to get into more debt just to enjoy a middle class lifestyle. And it's it's all the cause of the expense of the state, crazy laws. And the issue is, you know, how much more will people tolerate? And, you know, Russell Brand says it's going to be a revolution there, there might well be but you know we don't have a, a great history of revolutions in the uk that doesn't mean it can't happen but the the question is how much more will people tolerate and 
you know, everyone clearly knows there is something wrong. There is something seriously wrong. And that's why every time, you know, when somebody like Russell Brand speaks up on a programme like Newsnight, it goes so viral because he's articulating what people are thinking. And I think people are at a loss to, you know, what to do about it. And the central aim of my book is is to show how this has come about and what to do about it. And, and the I say, you know, this has all come about. It's the unintended consequence, most of it, of some kind of state action or other. And what to do about it, separate money and state. Because once the state lose control of money, then they can't do so many of the things that they do. Well, to borrow a, a lyric from Pink Floyd, uh, hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. And <laughs> people will put up with a lot. And you know, increasingly, uh, the example I always like to give is back in the 1980s. If you'd outlined to me, for example, what a going to an airport would be like in the early 21st century, I would have said, no, people aren't going to take that. You know, they'll take a lot, but they won't take that. But, you know, here we are. But in terms of separating money in the state. That's incredible. I mean, what's happening in, in an airport is incredible. Yeah, it is. I feel sorry for the airlines. And, you know, I, I can remember it wasn't so long ago that you could buy a flight to India or to Thailand, you know, somewhere in Asia for 300 quid. And you could buy a, a flight across the Atlantic for maybe 200, 250 quid. I took my kids to Florida in the spring and it was 800 quid a ticket. And 500 pounds of that 800 pounds ticket was tax. And it's going to, you know, the tax is being spent on, you know, stupid security where yep. people are being checked. People who do not fit the profile of somebody who's going to bomb or disrupt a plane in any way whatsoever. And yet they're being made to, to pay because it's this one size fits all thinking that goes on with government. Well, I had to laugh the other day. I was watching an old film from the 1970s and one of the protagonists goes to uh, JFK Airport in New York, walks up to the desk, goes, one way to Miami, please, pays in cash and gets on the plane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why can't it be like that? You know, like I said, AJP Taylor, in 1914, if you wanted to travel abroad, you did not need a passport. You just went. Well, as I alluded to at the start, a lot of people feel that nothing good will happen without the state and that uh, the free market is basically just about greedy people clambering over each other to get a big slice of the pie, but you go through a laundry list of areas that uh, government is heavily or completely involved in, points out the enormous problems in the, the enormous failings, including the NHS, you know, which is a bit of a holy cow, and actually demonstrate how, given the chance, free a genuine free market with free-flowing organisations, people and associations can do all of these things actually to a better standard and in some cases did in the past. I mean, I know it's difficult to make direct comparisons with the Victorian age, for example, and today because a lot of things were not as good back then. So, you, yeah. you, you know, the, so you can't say that the, the healthcare being provided privately back then was better necessarily than the NHS today. Well, but of course, the standard of healthcare was lower because the standard of everything was lower. We were 150 years or 130 years less advanced. But in the context of the day, the standard was higher and it cost less. Yeah, exactly. And I read a book a few years ago by a guy called David Craig uh, called yeah. Squ Squandered, which I'd, even though the figures were out of date, I'd recommend it to anyone uh, to get a handle on government waste. And not only in the NHS, but in the other, you know, like education, for example, even in the military, the, the catalogue of waste is staggering. And, it, and that just wouldn't work in the private sector. The company would go under or the, the, you know, the CEO would be sacked, whatever. There would be yeah. consequences. 
Yeah, absolutely. The, the numbers of waste are terrifying. But let me just come back to this subject. We, we can talk about waste in a moment because I want to talk about this, how a free market can handle welfare better than the government can. The, the 12th century Jewish philosopher Maimonides argued that the highest form of charity is when the help given enables the receiver of the charity to become state self-sufficient. Now, the state provision of charity, or welfare as we call it, has had the opposite effect. It's actually created dependency. Giving care, it's a delicate, it's a complicated, and it's a capricious process. Sometimes giving money might help somebody towards self-sufficiently, but sometimes giving money, you know, it might lead to a temporary lessening of suffering, but it can often lead to more dependence. It can lead to indolence. Sometimes, you know, a kick up the backside is more beneficial. Some, sometimes something else is required, something local or something practical. And the dignity of the recipient also needs to be considered in the charitable process. It can be demeaning to receive charity. And so sometimes anonymity might be required. But on other occasions, anonymity isn't appropriate. Different circumstances require different forms of care. Now, the kind of top down, one size fits all state welfare system that we have it just can't hope to meet all those varying needs. There's also the issue of the giver of care. Now, compassion, the giving of charity, the giving of care, these are all essential human functions. They're part of human nature. People need to give as much as they need to receive. Even horrible, nasty, ruthless, cold people have this need to give. The most ruthless, murderous drug trafficker that ever drew breath, Pablo Escobar, was one of the most prolific givers that ever lived. He, you know, he donated so much to Medellin. So the giver too has needs in the charitable process. Sometimes he likes to be anonymous. Sometimes he needs recognition. Sometimes he or she likes to be involved with the recipient in some way. Sometimes not. But in the process of state care, the giver's needs, they're not even considered. Taxes are taken and that's it. We have no real say in how that money is spent bar a kind of fairly meaningless vote every five years, you know, and often I find myself morally opposed to what my taxes might be spent on. The forced giving that is taxation, it, it destroys the altruistic satisfaction that people get from giving voluntarily. And like I say, to share with others is part of humanity. But in a world where the government takes care of the poor and needy, com compassion is actually removed from life. And as a result, you've got this bizarre situation where the state has a monopoly on compassion. <laughs> and it's more bizarrely specific than that. The pro-welfare state left wing has this monopoly on compassion. And anyone who doesn't agree with the concept of a large generous welfare state is deemed heartless and, 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 and selfish. And there's another issue with, with state welfare as it stands, which is that if, if I'm paying the government through taxation, to provide welfare or healthcare or education, my ability to provide these things for my family is reduced because I have less money. So then I find myself falling into the, the web of dependence. I find myself depending on the state for healthcare or education or welfare. And so this dependency net keeps on growing. And there's another thing is that, is that if the state is providing care, you're then absolved of the responsibility to provide care. So all these things go on at once. Meanwhile, 
You know, government welfare is expensive. The large organisations through which care is it is administered, are, it, they're inefficient, they're wasteful, they can be prone to corruption, to rent-seeking. And if you look at industries where government hasn't got involved, food and clothing, for example, you know, and those are other essential human needs, over the last 20 years, you've seen dramatic falls in the cost of both because competition has driven costs lower. I mean, if you go into, it's amazing the variety of food that we now have in our lives. It's, it's wonderful and it's fantastic. Now, why has the same not happened with healthcare, education and welfare? Because, because of this monopoly that the state has. There isn't enough competition. There isn't the right sort of competition. This, the top-down, rigid model of state welfare just isn't flexible to meet varying needs. And a free market can meet those needs because things can be provided nationally, or they can be provided locally, whatever the situation requires. And the idea that there will be no care in a free market is nonsense because giving care is an essential human function. Sometimes when I mention ideas along the lines we're discussing, one of the popular things that comes up with people is what about homeless people? It could be other groups, but what about homeless people is quite common. My initial thought is, uh, well, this, you know, the states oversee, there are homeless charities, of course, independently, but the states overseeing a situation now where the homeless numbers are going up. So I don't really see that the state per se has been the answer to homelessness. But I will then say, well, yeah, well, it hasn't. I would then say to them, OK, well, what you care about homeless people. So what do you do to help them? And if they say, well, well, I don't do anything, you know, I mean, that's for the state to do. And I'll say, well, you don't really care that much about them then because the state has overseen homeless numbers going up. But if they say I pay my tax and the state has the responsibility to house homeless people, I'm absolved of the responsibility. Exactly. And if they if you have more money, you have more power. If housing is cheaper, if healthcare and education is cheaper, you know, all, we can provide all these things ourselves. Yeah, and if the person I'm discussing this, you know, state or no state concept with then says, well, actually, I do care about homeless people because I volunteer at a soup kitchen once a week and I give £20 a month, then I say, that's how homeless people will be helped without the state, by people like you. Well, you know? exactly. Remember that without the state, the state is the most expensive purchase we ever make in our lives, as Doug Carswell says. You know, it, people think your house is the most expensive purchase that you'll ever make or your children's education. It isn't. It's the government. That is the biggest expense in your life. And if we got rid of that expense, we'd all have so much more money. And with with money comes power. And not only would, you know, we have more money and power, the cost of our lives would be cheaper. So yet again, we're richer. And the richer we are, the more capable we are of helping people. Not only are we more capable of helping people, we are more motivated to help people because the state isn't doing it. So the responsibility falls to us and to communities. Of course, the, the, the mainstream media with their overly negative reporting has us as a society believing that we're fundamentally bad, that human nature is in some way evil and that left to its own devices, it's not only would people not get help to people who genuinely needed it, whatever sort of help that might be, but we'd quickly degenerate into some kind of Mad Max type scenario with people feeding on each other. And that's actually the evidence such that there is just doesn't support that. Well, we all act in our own self-interest. There's no doubt about that. But sometimes our self-interest brings benefit to others. You know, it's my interest to be the funniest comedian in the world. But in being the funniest comedian of the world, I make you laugh. I bring 
joy into your life. Well, I, you, if, if I was funnier than I am. Anyway, but the so, you know, sometimes acting in your self-interest brings benefit. But the idea that people will suffer without the state, the state is, you know, people say religion is the biggest killer in history. It's not. It's governments. It's the state. It's the state wages war. People don't wage war. Governments do. I mean, again, there's a there's a, 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 a little bit of a rant about this in my book. And, you know, I looked at the 20. There's actually a really good entry on Wikipedia, which is, shows you the 20 largest wars in history by death toll. And you'll, you'll have to forgive me because I haven't got the um, the actual page in front of me. But I from memory, I think of the 20 largest wars in history by death toll, four were religious. And the other 16 were waged by governments. It was either conquering land grab or some kind of ideological dispute behind them. And this idea that you touched on there is, is very important uh, in that people trying to provide for themselves for their own future, which the government is always encouraging us to do, you know, because there's austerity and we have to get the welfare bill down. But any attempt to do that is penalised. And I'm not just talking about income tax. If you try to do anything you know, just honestly and genuinely above board and within the rules to get ahead, somebody from the government comes looking for a slice of it, you know, whether it's inheritance <laughs> tax or capital gains, yeah. you know, and you have to then become devious and cloak and dagger to try and avoid this. Or, of course, you if you're, you know, just Mr. Straight guy, then you cough up and you're worse off. But we have to engage in this cat and mouse to just try and not try to get rich, but just try so that you don't have to go to the state with a begging bowl. Yeah, well, I mean, I know people who technically are criminals and should be locked up in jail for non-payment of tax. But the reason they haven't paid their tax is not because they're trying to avoid paying tax, it's because they're incompetent and they cannot face the administration of it. So, you know, why why should that person be a criminal just because he's incompetent? Uh, and similarly, I, th I don't know what the exact numbers are, but it, it, it's something like 80% of people have taken drugs. 80% of young people have taken drugs of some kind. So are 80% of young people criminals? You know, these crazy laws that make criminals out of people who just aren't criminals. Well, talking about the tax system and about the legal system, under state guidance, we now have the most baroque, Byzantine levels of complexity in the tax code and the legal system. The legislation that's brought in each year increasing in number, and it's, as you point, you point out, it's never repealed either. And we get to a point where there's enormous diseconomies of scale. And yes, some lawyers and tax accountants may be getting rich, but the majority of people in the system are losing out as a result of this. Yeah, our tax code is 11,000 pages. And I think in the US it's 65,000 pages. <laughs> and this explains why it's routine in America, particularly, for people to fall foul of By the, the way, uh, my book is only 280 pages. Yeah, so yeah re refreshingly brief. The tax code. <laughs> and it's better written. It will, exactly. But it's not uncommon for people in the US to fall foul of the IRS unwittingly. They, yeah. they, as far as they're concerned, they complied with everything. But then, you know, in page whatever thousand subclause 36D, they find out that and the wording of which is obscure anyway. They find out that they've basically broken the law and then are quite often fined or run into other problems. Well, I mean, absolutely. One of the big themes of my book is that we should just have a simple flat tax across the board, same rates for everyone, 15%, same rates for corporations as for individuals. I don't understand why corporations get ta taxed less than people do. That's never struck me as fair. 
And uh, I also suggest a land value tax, although all the uh, Austrian economists, I've had a couple of angry emails saying it's a brilliant book, apart from the chapter on land value tax, which is wrong. But um, I think a, a, a land value tax will cause a fairer distribution of land than we currently have. I mean, it's crazy. One percent of land. Sorry. Seventy percent of land in the UK is owned by less than one percent of the people. Um, and if ever there was a skewed distribution of wealth, it's that. But we need a flatter, simpler, fairer rate of tax. And George Osborne talked about a flat tax uh, when he was in opposition. And then he's just kind of given up on it since he's come into power. I have no idea why. I wish I knew. But the evidence of a flat tax is that people are more happy to pay tax if they feel the tax is fair. And when tax is onerous, you get the three F's, which are fraud, flight and fight. That's from a book by Charles Adams called The Story of Taxation. And, um, you know, we're seeing all three of those things, fraud, flight and fight. And, you know, this is a cause of an excessively onerous uh, taxation system and it's so easy to simplify it and it's so obvious what should be done you know every country that's gone to a flat rate tax even though the rate of tax is lower the government has actually seen an increase in revenue because people are happier to pay it and uh, what's more then what then comes as a result of a flat tax is that you get more economic activity companies start basing themselves here non-doms come back you don't get companies based in Panama and Luxembourg or wherever it is, they base themselves back on shore again. And everything is more transparent, everything is uh, more honest, and government revenue increases, which means tax levels can be further pushed down. Goodness knows why they don't do it. It's because of this crazy civil service that run the country. You think you're voting for the government, it's the same civil service, whoever you vote for. And it just gets, as each year passes, it gets one layer more complex and you and the state never, ever stops growing. And until you change the system of money, it will not stop growing and nor will the wealth gap, which is another subject in itself. I think George Osborne was probably gotten to at some point after taking office. But two things here. One is that the bureaucrats, as you mentioned, they don't like to see their departments shrinking, whether it's in budget or numbers of people. And as you say, they're there all the time. And the government c- continues to grow despite, you know, calls for simplification, even sometimes from within Parliament and, and streamlining, you know, because we're at times of austerity, the budgets, uh, the government's got to give up some budget funds as well. But one of the reasons it can carry on doing this, as I mentioned earlier, spending increases despite um, all the protestations in Parliament, is that a lot of the costs of government are basically hidden. And of course, if they're essentially getting money for nothing or money that has to be worried about at some point, two or three generations time, it can allow this largesse and this, the aforementioned waste and the increase in size. Absolutely. Yeah. A moment or two ago, you mentioned growing income equality. Now, that's yeah. something that's very much in the news and people are really feeling the pinch. Some people at the top end, small percentage are doing very nicely. Thank you. For example, sales of Rolex watches and Porsches have never been higher. You know, obviously, at the, the other end of the scale, not doing so well. Now, there's a fundamental economic reason for this income equality growing, and it's going to continue to do so. And it's not just a sort of, oh, dear, some some people are getting rich and some people are not doing so well. This has social consequences that are only going to grow in severity. Yeah. And it's entirely a, a consequence of our system of money. And I've got a whole chapter in my book about this, about what happens when we create money. And it's, I actually call the chapter How Money is Theft. So the wealth gap. This was the most 
one of the most cited things in the Russell Brand interview. It was one of the most one of the things that made people most angry in the Occupy movement is this income inequality. And there's one stat that does the rounds. The wealthiest 400 people in the world are worth more than the poorest 140 million. And when once they earn 20 times more, CEOs of banks and major corporations can now earn 500 to 1,000 times more than low-ranking employees in the same firm. Um, I'll give you an example. A Burberry sales assistant earns about 16 to 17,000 pounds a year, including commission. The Burberry CEO <laughs> was paid 16.9 million pounds last year. That's a thousand times more. Now, I shudder to think what the Burberry Asian factory worker is getting. The richest 1% of Americans earn a quarter of the country's income and through property, shares and art and so on control half of its wealth. And the discrepancies in the UK are even worse. Like I said, 70% of land is owned by less than 1% of the population. Now, this wealth gap is entirely a consequence of our system of money. I'm going to give you an example. If, imagine I'm going to do an animation about this uh, one day when I get round to it. But imagine a tiny economy and there are 20 people in it. I'm going to show you what happens when money gets created. Um, in this tiny economy with 20 people, 10 of them have a dollar each in cash. So there's $10 in the entire economy. And the other 10 people each have an asset. So there are 10 assets in the economy and they're each priced at a dollar. So people are quite happy to buy and sell these assets for a dollar each. If more assets appear in the company, but the amount of money stays the same, the cost of the assets will fall. But let's just assume for now that no uh, new assets enter the economy. Now, one person, and uh, we'll call him Mr. King, after our beloved former chairman of the Bank of England, is suddenly able to create another $10 from nowhere. And he decides to go out and spend some of that money. And he buys an asset for a dollar which the vendor is happy to sell because based on the knowledge that the vendor has, that's the fair market price, except that it isn't because there's no longer $10 in the economy, but $20. And at a dollar, the vendor has sold his asset too cheap and he's received devalued money in exchange. Mr. King then decides to outbid the others and offers $1.50 for another asset. And the vendor, again, is delighted. He sells. He thinks he's rather clever because he's got a $1.50 for his asset instead of, instead of a dollar. But even he sold his asset too cheap. Meanwhile, Mr. King is becoming asset rich. The other vendors now hear assets are trading for $1.50. And so they expect that price, which Mr. King is happy to pay. And so asset prices are gradually rising to reflect the new money in circulation. But there are some huge losers in this whole process. The first are each of those people who each had a dollar. The purchasing power of their money is now no longer enough to buy the asset they were previously able to buy. And ultimately, the purchasing power of their money will halve because there's twice as much money in circulation. They haven't done anything wrong. They haven't acted imprudently. Yet they're made poorer by this process of other people creating new money. And gradually, there's this huge transfer of wealth. And that is what's happened through quantitative easing. And in fact, is what happens through our, our crazy system of money, which the creation of which ultimately is infinite. So basically, the, pe the people who get the new money first are able to exploit that. They're the ones who benefit. But now let's come to the question of the people who held the assets in this economy. How have they done? Now, eventually, asset prices in this economy are going to rise to $2 because there are 10 assets and $20 in circulation. And the price of their assets should rise to reflect the new money in 
circulation. So as long as they didn't sell, they come out even. They probably think they're richer because their asset now costs $20, but it's a delusion. It's the same asset. All they've done is survive the inflation, nothing more. However, if they were one of the vendors who sold their money for a dollar or a dollar fifty, they now cannot afford to buy back the asset they previously sold. They're priced out. They're off the ladder and they're poor. And that's what's happened in the housing market. So what happens in the monetary process is, is it benefits, as you say, everyone who is closest to the issuance of new money, i.e. banks. <laughs> and it takes money away from people who had cash who were furthest away from it. And that might be people who are geographically, geographically further away or, you know, like a farmer or something or somebody who's on fixed salaries or just a simple saver. And this process is continuous and relentless and it, it redistributes wealth from one group to another. And the longer it goes on, the bigger the wealth gap will get. And that is how our system of money works. And that is why the wealth gap is inevitable. That's why it is, is, is why our system of money actually causes the wealth gap. So the big question behind all this is basically if functionally the bank is in a way, sorry, the government is, governments are owned by banks. We see this perhaps in the American political process with campaign funds and what have you. Then how, how can we expect the government to re reform the system of money in that situation? And of course, the whole point of your book is we should be looking to a life after the state, in which case we wouldn't be expecting the government to do anything of the sort. We would just shrink the government. We'd go off and do our own thing. And this, uh, a genuinely free system would carry out the reforms of banking. Yeah, well, I don't believe a government is going to reform it unless suddenly somebody has a position of, you know, you get some principled Austrian economist or something who is who is, you know, becomes chancellor of the exchequer. But even then, you know, his power is limited. But actually, monetary reform is actually a relatively, you know, I don't think it would be as controversial as something like fox hunting or homosexual marriage. You know, it's a pretty people are alien. People are scared off when you talk about something like money because they don't understand it. So it would actually be a fairly easy reform to implement. That doesn't mean I think it's going to happen, but it might be forced on government if competitive if, if we have huge inflation that they are unable to hide that governments are unable to mask then it will happen uh, because you know there will be the pressure on governments not to debase the money in the way that they're doing it or if you know competing currencies start to replace existing money now bitcoin is is a good example now i happen to I'm a bit worried about Bitcoin because it's the most fantastic idea. But what's happened is, it, you know, as I speak, I think it's, it was $700 when I looked yesterday and it was a dollar, you know, a couple of years ago. And it's become a speculative asset. Now, that is wonderful for people who, who own Bitcoins, but it's, I don't believe it was the aim behind the, behind the founders. I think the founders intended for it to become a medium of exchange. But when something has, has become as parabolic as Bitcoin has... You know, the fear is, is that it's all going to unravel. And when it does, people are going to lose a lot of money. And so people will lose faith in Bitcoin. So it might end up being counterproductive. And I believe there are maybe 10 or more other cryptocurrencies in their formation. But like I say, Bitcoin is the one that's caught a bid. You know, maybe maybe some gold backed Bitcoin will exist and people will start using that. I don't know. But this change I don't believe governments will make this change voluntarily. It will have to be forced on them by circumstance, whether that circumstance is inflation or um, or it's, you know, losing out to competing currencies. 
Well, Dominic, as we begin to wind things up for today, there's many, many areas in your book, uh, once again, which is life after the state, which we didn't get to, including a long, uh, very good section on the education system and how that does better out of state hands. But anyway, listeners can get the book. They want to get the full the full deal, so to speak. But just as we round things off, perhaps you could say what signs of hope that you see and what, what makes you optimistic? What, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? OK, well... <laughs> Life After State, it's available through all the normal channels, Amazon and so on. And there's an audio book. Uh, if you go to lifeafterthestate.com, if you like audio books, and I imagine in listening to this, you might be interested in audio books. You can, you can buy the audio book there, um, lifeafterthestate.com, and then just click on audio book. What makes me optimistic in the morning? There are some people out there in positions of power and influence who get it. The likes of Steve Baker the MP and, and Douglas Carswell, the MP. So the ideas in the book are gaining more and more traction. Steve Baker said to me he he sees, instead of bleeding heart liberals, he sees bleeding heart libertarianism being the next trend. And if people can get the idea that the small state is the way to be compassionate, I think, you know, the ideas will grow and grow. Some of the comments that I've had on Amazon from people who've read the book have been unbelievably positive. And also some of the emails I've had, people saying things like that, you've managed to articulate exactly what I've been thinking, I'm gonna buy 20 of these and hand them out as Christmas presents, those kind of things. So that makes me feel positive. Doug Carswell says that some kind of change is mathematically inevitable because of the sheer size of the debt. I'm not so sure about that, because you know, alluding to our conversation before, how much does debt matter? And they seem to have got away with it. But, you know, the digital, we are in the midst of a digital revolution and we are also in the midst of a huge ideological battle. And at the moment, well, I use this quote in the book. At the moment, I think we're not quite a lone voice out there. The, The voice is getting louder. But I use this quote in the book, which came from a guy who posts on a website called House Price Crash. And he's called Injin. And he says, find the right answer. Realize you'll never see it in your lifetime and then advocate it anyway because it's the right answer. And I love that quote. So that makes me feel positive. Yeah, do do what right do what's right, whatever the consequences. I think as the character in Death Wish says, forget what's legal, do what's right. Uh, well, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, I suppose absolutely. <laughs> now you've mentioned the book already. Uh, give folks your website addresses. Well, my website is dominicfrisby.com, but uh, the the website of the book is lifeafterthestate.com. But if you just type in, bizarrely, if you type in life after the state into Google, lifeafterthestate.com doesn't come up. I don't I don't quite understand that. Maybe it's because the website is too new. But yeah, it's available. If you want the paperback, you just buy it on Amazon. If you want the audio book, buy it at lifeafterthestate.com. And if you want the hardback, you've got to go to the publisher called the Unbound, and you can buy by the hardback um, there but uh, I, I hope if you've enjoyed listening to this interview by all means please buy the book because we I, you know not because I want to get rich and famous although both would be nice I don't think I'm ever going to get rich publishing a book but just because the more people that enjoy these ideas and think about these ideas and talk about these ideas you know the, the, the better the world will be excellent well Dominic thanks once again so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalisefreedom.com. 
legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.